0: On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're deep in the Western Alaska Range with registered hunting guide Rob Jones. Rob tells us some riveting stories from his colorful careers, starting as a private pilot at a young age, to his adventurous years as an Alaskan smoke jumper, to ultimately becoming a prolific commercial fisherman and hunting guide of over thirty years. Today, Rob operates his hunting operation R and R Hunting from his Big River Lodge the same place we recorded this here podcast. You're about to hear a diverse string of tales, including some from the early years of building his lodge, when Rob and his crew deconstructed, flew out, and later reassembled on-site an actual bulldozer, to his painful story of his worst case of frostbite ever that almost claimed to both of his feet, and even the haunting recollection of recovering the victims of a plane wreck out of the Wrangell Mountains. Rob Jones, Indiana Jones, what's the difference? This man has seen and survived it all. So listen up. You're about to hear from one of the most interesting and experienced humans I've ever met, Mr. Rob Jones. When I got out of the airplane today, Charlie was very nice to me. I come to find out from these other boys when they got off the airplane, uh, Charlie was a little nippy with them. oh he
1: gets that way he does that to me too
0: i prided myself on the dog liking me and not liking them (laughs) but i think it was just situational because you were with me Mm -hmm. and you jumped out of the airplane and got them all happy you're like
1: hey charlie
0: then i was like hey charlie
1: i'm rob's friend
0: (laughs) so he immediately trusted me that's a alaska sled dog mutt deal
1: yeah sled dog half blue healer it's pretty big yeah, for a blue healer, he's big.
0: You said he was four?
1: He's four, yep.
0: Those are the good years, man. I've got two four-year-olds, blue ticks, and they're, uh, I think they're at their best. They're finally acting like adult dogs and hunting huntin really well, and they're old enough to know better about a bunch of the bullshit, so mm. I think four is prime time. My best dog is going on 11, mm. and that's a sad sad story yep mr rob jones we are at your lodge here in the western alaska range is that how you would explain where we're at right now Mm -hmm. just roughly
1: yep basically western alaska range
0: you call this big river lodge
1: yep big river lodge in the revelation mountains in
0: the revelation mountains tell me about the dirt we're sitting on this is unique. We're sitting on private property surrounded by an ocean of public land and you have built a paradise here. There's uh multiple buildings, multiple cabins and you outfit out of this operation. It seems out of place. It's so nice and it's so remote. But tell me about when you got the dirt and how you broke ground here.
1: Uh got the dirt uh f- through a, a land disposal program state of Alaska was conducting from Mid seventies to the early to mid eighties. It was called Alaska's land disposal program. At it disposal
0: came, and they were just yeah, tell basically me basically
1: trying to get public land into private hands.
0: Okay. It yeah. sounds like to me like an old western like, hey, if you move to Oregon yeah. the government'll give you a thousand acres, or something like that.
1: Yeah, it was um well, the first program everybody knows is called homesteading.
0: That's right, yeah.
1: The next program was home siding. Then they had a what's tr- home what's the difference uh, home siting you had to you I believe there was no agriculture involved homesteading you had to actually gr- have a crop or grow something on it
0: you were ob- you got free land from the government but you were obligated to produce crops on it
1: yeah that was to prove up on it you had to live on it I believe you had to and this was the homesteading program yep and the different and so that and that was the number was 160 acres was what you were allotted and once it, you proved up on it got it surveyed and then it was deeded to you
0: um was your crop like a debt you had to pay back I, to the government I, I didn't
1: do that no my program came
0: from no i know i'm just at home, homesteading like um, the definition I, of it was if, I don't if believe, you had to go I produce crops
1: it, i believe it. you just had to pay for this um the surveying and then um once it was deeded the fees
0: and so what's home siding
1: home siding was similar i don't remember how many acres but there was no agriculture involved i believe all you had to do was live on it for a couple of years
0: okay and how tell me about the program that you got involved in. well then the next the land one, disposal
1: land disposal but the next one was called trade and manufacture jeez which is what uh a lot of guides um People started business. You had to start a business on it.
0: I see. So there's like a, op- a lot of old
1: time, you know, 50s, 60 guides ended up with lodges on private land through this trade and manufacture program.
0: Is this how like a, a uh, fishery or a uh, gosh? I'm blanking on the word where all the where all the boats bring the fish in. Well, like they would get their dirt on the edge of some random um, spot back in the possibly. day. Can, canneries.
1: Gosh, yeah. P- possibly. I'm not sure about that.
0: And so you were on the fourth revolution of that called the Land Disposal Act.
1: Yeah, and then the next thing came along was the state of Alaska's Land Disposal Program. Program. I believe it started in the mid-70s and went through close to the mid-80s before it was um, shut down.
0: Were you already guiding out here, uh, familiar with the area at all? I
1: was familiar. I, I obtained the land in 1982. In 82? Yeah. And you were allowed to t- uh you came out, you had a big line around section of land, mm-hmm. and you could stake up to 40 acres within that boundary line. Yeah. This was called the Big River Land Disposal Program, I believe.
0: And so, did you read about that in the paper? How, I, no, it
1: came, uh, you went to the land office, Department, okay. uh, of Alaska Department of Natural Resources, and you looked these up.
0: You uh, You shared with me previously what you paid per acre out here and right if you're comfortable saying it on here it's mind-blowing to me what it seems like an old 1800s deal
1: it was very inexpensive because there's really was or still is um it's not that valuable by land practices
0: i beg to differ
1: i mean um as far you know how land is appraised in these places is buildable ground um Accessibility, buildable ground, and a view.
0: A view. They take, and this is a. Is this a federal? But this deal? is uh, a, no, state? It was state a state. This state, state, state program. Um. But they. Uh, I believe this place has all those.
1: It well, does have all of it, but then there's the economic. You know, what is it worth? You know, what's the demand for it? There was not that much demand for it. I see. And and then once you staked it, then you had. You basically leased it for up to ten years, and within the ten years, you had to get it surveyed, and then you had to submit um, some paperwork to get a deed of trust on it, or you know, a title to it.
0: But you didn't break ground right away, did you? No. When the only thing you...
1: I did was build that small log cabin. I built it one year after I staked it. That in... small cabin down by the lake.
0: You punch an airstrip in, or we always?
1: Well, we just land on the lake in the winter and walked in from the river in the summer.
0: Is that right? Okay.
1: Had a little trail. And
0: yeah, because Big River's just over that hill right there. Yeah,
1: about straight line, about a half a mile.
0: How many years did that last? Uh, or when did you start building this? Uh,
1: oh, all sp- of this? Yeah. Started in, um, at, well, uh, back up a little bit. I went to work for a, a guy in uh, the Wrangell Mountains who, him and I came out together to stake the land. He owns land on the other side of the lake, in fact. Huh. And um, I worked for him for. Uh, several years guiding flying doing that sort of thing and then i decided to move on decided so to come out here see what it was all about just kind of hang out didn't um really have i never had this in mind uh, uh, at all wow so well, then, what was
0: the change what what inspired um, you to do it to, to build this uh i, I was
1: actually flying um, for a guy down about 100 miles south of here and um One thing kind of led to another, and I met a a guy named Rod Shue, who became my partner.
0: Rod Shue. Yeah. And And, and uh, we
1: started a business called R&R Guide Service. I believe we started in about 91 or 92.
0: And um, do you operate under that name today?
1: I don't operate under that exact name. But I operate under R and R Hunting and Outdoor Adventures. Okay. And he also operates under R and R Alaska Peninsula Guide Service out yep. of Cold Bay.
0: And he's a he's a guide brother of yours of mm. many years.
1: Yep. We're in business about fifteen years. Yeah. And one thing led to another. We just split the business. wasn't any bitterness, or we're still very good friends.
0: Yeah, it. that's what it sounds like from mm. hearing you talk about him and listening to Justin's stories and stuff. Mm. Sounds like a Sounds like a brother type relationship mm-hmm. at some point. So 91, you and he kind of partner yep. up and say we could we could run yep. a hunting camp here.
1: Yep, and we started. That's when we started building. The first thing we did was, um, before we built the runway, I built a small wall tent camp here. Nice. That's and, yeah. I
0: was gonna say that's how I would have started too.
1: Yeah, we had wall tents, couple weather ports. Uh, some wall tents a couple for the clients and a couple for the guides um up
0: on the hill here
1: right up on the hill um and that summer how we got that in here was uh when i was a smoke jumper prior to all this
0: yeah we're gonna and get into that
1: i hired a couple of my buddies and they uh, banded up some lumber and the tents and everything we did an airdrop in here
0: explain that to me
1: that's uh, called para cargo
0: Pair of cargo.
1: Dropping cargo out of the back of a plane.
0: So you and your smoke jumper buddies were like, "We need a ton of building supplies out at out at the at the spot, mm-hmm. and getting things in here. No surprise, there's no road here. It's either coming in on a plane or a snowmobile, correct?
1: Probably, probably more like just a plane.
0: Okay, just a plane. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: in practicality.
0: And so you guys did Operation Lumber Drop. Mm-hmm. What did you aim? What What did you drop? And what did you aim for?
1: Well, we just Set it right up in here where the runway is now.
0: Was it with a chopper?
1: No, nope, it was with an airplane. We dropped it out back with parachutes. And
0: and, it, and you landed it yep. right where you wanted to just be. Like,
1: just like the Army does, you know, dropping stuff into yeah. their troops. Same thing.
0: And you guys just had the, the know-how from... Yeah, from your,
1: firefighting. We yeah. did it all the time.
0: Tell me about the bulldozer you got here.
1: The bulldozer was the next thing what we kind of bulldozer a, is it it's a john deere 350 a small bulldozer we took it all apart in town and our plan was to fly it out piece by piece which we did
0: flew it out when you say you took it down like how far down are you breaking it down
1: well, all the way down. it had to be yeah yeah but then again we had some parts we couldn't get into our small airplanes um and we looked at this lake, and there was another guy that had an airplane called a Skyvan. His name was um, Floyd Salts. And uh, he came out in his Super Cub one time, and I asked him, do you think you can land on this lake in the winter? And he said yes with a, a limited load.
0: Because if you're heavy, it's mm-hmm. going to take you longer to stop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's going to take longer to stop. Um, the ice had to be just right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the tricky part. It took three years before we had, we had to engineer the ice. What do I you mean
0: engineer the ice?
1: We had to uh, learn it? No, we uh, we had to have the, his insurance company, in order to land on lakes, had to have engineered ice land on for or else it was out too risky. Oh, so it had to be So you would drill signed. holes. every yeah. yeah. Fi- you'd get your line of where you're going to land. You'd drill holes every 15, f- every 15, f- every 50 feet, all along where he was going to operate the aircraft. Yeah. And then you would stick a tape down and measure it. And then you would take it to the nearest National Weather Service office, which was McGrath. And they would give you the warmest day and the coldest day. And you had to measure snow, and they had, you know, they knew about how much snowfall there was. And they were the ones that would give out that kind of... And then it would go to an engineer that engineered the ice.
0: And somebody would have to sign off on this. Yes,
1: the engineer, and he would... It took three years because the ice failed the first two years. Didn't pass the test. Didn't pass the test.
0: What size, what size plane was this? It's a Skyvan. It's the same sky van.
1: Same kind of plane as we dropped this stuff out of. It was oh a, it's a cargo plane, but it's not by today's standard, very small. It's a small twin engine, boxy-looking thing. Yeah. You could haul comfortably about 3,000 pounds in it.
0: Okay. Hey, would that be similar to the haul load of a beaver?
1: No, no. Beaver's
0: about Oh, the Skyvan's much more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good.
1: Beavers are. Uh. Well, it depends on where you're going, how much fuel you. Yeah. 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 On. Basically, probably fi- twelve, fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, if it's not a very long flight, seventeen hundred. Anyway, on the third year, we got it all put back. Oh, we got all the parts out here rod and myself and we did hire a guy to take it apart that was used to doing stuff like this basically a guy that worked for yeah. miners would come out in the middle of nowhere or take things apart put them together fix them
0: yeah i could see that be a demand in the mi- in the remote mining industry
1: so he we hired him we brought him out we just built a big tripod out of some poles we had a little winch we'd pick up parts and we'd slide we cleaned all the snow off the ice we could slide everything around on the glare ice yeah and um When it was in town, it took him about eight hours to break it down as far as we needed it. And when he put it back together here, it took him about eight or nine hours. It did. We thought that was, usually when you take something apart, it takes a lot longer to put it back together. Yeah. It didn't for him. This
0: guy knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And so what have you used the dozer here for?
1: Make that runway.
0: You punched in a big, beautiful runway up on the hill here. That's
1: all it's ever really done.
0: maybe the cabin location um some
1: we've done some it has a back hole we dig foundations and stuff but the primary reason for having it was
0: you you wanted a a big nice runway up on the hill where you were going to build these Mm -hmm. these lodges Mm -hmm. um because we're probably 200 feet above the lake about
1: no actually vertically we're only about 75 oh wow if you go straight across i see down
0: yeah, so uh, you got the dozer put together. You punched in that airstrip. It's a large airstrip. What's uh, the what's the biggest plane you've had come land but, here?
1: There again, Skyvan. Yeah. Okay. It, it was capable of that. It's 300 feet longer than that lake.
0: So today, how many buildings do you have on? Nine total. Nine total buildings, mm-hmm. and it's it's incredible. I've I've hunted and guided in the Alaska Range for this is my fourth year, and this is the most uh, shocking thing I've ever stumbled upon, you know, when you when you turn the corner and see all these buildings from the plane as you're coming in, it's it's hard to believe that they're they're there, that it's so remote and it looks so uh, manicured and it didn't happen by accident. And it's we're in the main lodge right now, which is like the great room in the kitchen. And then you've got several other cabins for hunters. You have yep. a sauna.
1: Mm-hmm. Sauna shower house.
0: Big fuel pumps outside, generators. Um, it's a small city. It feels like a small town out here.
1: And that's a, right next to us. There's the guide shack where the guides hang out and get their gear ready and put their gear away and stay when they're not in the field.
0: Yep. Are you telling me that's where I have to stay
1: tonight? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I will. And then the next building is our skinning shed for taking care of the hides and trophies and stuff like that.
0: So what's a normal year around here? What are you, what are you hunting and when are you busy and when are you not?
1: Um, right now is, of course, our spring bear season, yep. April, middle April, first to the first part of May. Uh, nothing goes on from uh, basically June to the middle end of July where we start getting ready for hunting season. August is caribou and doll sheep. And then September is all species are open, caribou, doll moose, sheep, black moose, bear, grizzlies, everything.
0: So let's let's go over those species that are here. We have caribou, moose, doll sheep, black bear, grizzly bear, mm-hmm. wolverine, wolves. Right. Uh, But no mountain goat? No goats. Why not? No
1: goats in the Alaska Range. They don't exist in the Alaska Range.
0: Don't they exist in Denali National Park? Nope. They don't. The so closest ones are Chugach.
1: Uh, probably by miles. Yeah. Now. Talkeetna, is Talkeetna has goats. The Chugach has goats. I say we, we bring them in. Uh, because they the, she, they the would, sheep are they doing so well here. They wouldn't survive here. Why not? Because it's not deemed a coastal range. Neither is Montana. But we have... Ther- Actually, believe there. it or not, the Rocky Mountains are.
0: Oh, really? It's by not, definition. It's not by where
1: it is. It's by the vegetation in the area.
0: All right. Well, that's for another day. I'm a big. Mount- that's a biology. Thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big mountain goat fan. Um, so that's what it is today. Or continue with that. You said moose season, your fall season. What's like a busy day around here? How how many moose hunts will you do a year out of this?
1: Boat? Oh, we do seven to seven to eight. A couple of those are combination combined with grizzly bear, caribou or moose. Yeah. Imagine, or, I imagine tall sheep.
0: I imagine most of them are
1: mm, not most, just a couple. Oh really? Seems like most of the time people just want to come moose hunting.
0: I'm all about getting, mm-hmm. getting the tags. You can all the tags you can have in your pocket. Some
1: people are a lot of times limited by how long they can be away from home,
0: or financially. Or financially. <laughs> yeah, there's there's mm-hmm. two very real limitations. Um, well, this this place is incredible. I'm out here right now uh, for the spring bear season, um, but if we back up from before you built this incredible place well, let me ask: what you have the outfitting business here and you also have a flying service yeah is that correct what's that called
1: Hesperus Air Service
0: and so you'll shuttle other hunters uh anything everything
1: we do a little bit of shuttling other hunters mostly guided hunters we fly for other hunting guides as you long do. As, as well as ourselves well, that's they, interesting we fly Can, for guides that don't have airplanes
0: that's uh, interesting uh that you would like help each other that you would it, it seems like there's so much tension between registered guides everywhere but if there only in places yeah
1: we have uh there's a group of about five guides that we we fly for and we just we just work around each other
0: that's called a gang mm-hmm. yeah you gotta respect the gang rules mm-hmm. um and you gotta i've flown several times now in your super cub Mm-hmm. You also have a Cessna. Cessna 206. Cessna 206.
1: There's too much snow to mess with that thing right now.
0: Do you uh, have a, f- a favorite? Do you love th- your Super Cub?
1: No, I like them both.
0: You do. Mhm. Two different machines for two, two different jobs. Two different
1: jobs. Yeah. Two yeah. Different critters. One's a bigger airplane. It it do it's kind of the workhorse around here. It goes back and forth to town. Yep. Brings people in and out. All of our supplies. All of our fuel um all the everyday and then it's the primary airplane in my air service too
0: yeah because you can have multiple people in there Mm -hmm. larger it's a six six
1: seater airplane normally only hauled four sometimes five just because of room
0: you got a belly pod on the cessna
1: belly pod on the cessna Mm -hmm.
0: is it a, a bigger belly pod than the cubs have oh yeah yeah I imagine it's a bigger plane i was surprised when you told me how fast you could Put on and take off a belly pod. I thought it would have been much more. Oh no, they're very simple. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm always surprised when I close the belly pod door how simple the three latches are. It's just like a quarter turn with three wing nuts. Mm-hmm. It's like that's that's what's holding everything in there. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you got into flying to begin with, or was smoke jump was your career smoke jumping probably had something to do with it. Where where are you from?
1: oh uh, my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, My family's from Colorado. My mom was born and raised in Littleton, Colorado, just on uh, northeast or the east end of Denver. My dad was raised in Westminster, somewhere in the northern part. They met in Colorado State. My dad was in the ROTC program. He went in the Air Force, I believe, in 55, about the time I was born.
0: World War II is well over.
1: Well, yeah, World War II was well over. I believe the Korean War was over, hmm. or very close to being over.
0: What did he do in the Air Force?
1: Started out flying, but then he went into more like logistics and things.
0: He was too and, smart for those planes.
1: I uh, just kind of had some uh, uh, medical issues. Yeah. And, uh,
0: so that was your introduction to you grew up around Air Force bases, and your mm-hmm. dad was a pilot.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. But I always just wanted to all I ever wanted to do in the whole world was fit, hunt hunting fish. That's all I cared about.
0: Turns out that flying airplanes can go really well with those two things.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. And I wanted to live in Alaska. We he did we did three tours up here.
0: You did as a as a kid and as a, as a teenager? We came,
1: first came up here in fifty nine. We were here. How
0: old were you then? Three. Okay, so you don't remember that
1: stuff. No. And then we moved away in uh, sixty three came back in 67 I believe and we were here for a couple 3 years and then my my dad was uh he had to go to uh, some kind of school then he was shipped off to Vietnam
0: he was as a logistics for, uh,
1: man yeah for a year that's probably
0: a little safer
1: and we moved back to Colorado and stayed with uh, around my grandparents and then during the Vietnam War, uh, during a lot of the Vietnam War, and then we, well, we moved so many times. Then we came back to Alaska, I believe, in '67. We were here till '71.
0: And how old are you now at this point?
1: Oh, 15.
0: Pretty, pretty impressionable. Yeah. But between Colorado and Alaska, you had plenty of outdoors.
1: Yeah. Well, my dad was, still is. He's all he thinks about is fishing.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah. Much of a hunter.
1: He was. He's eighty five now. Yeah. Did a lot of hunting. But now he lives in the Nilchick, which is a big fishing town on the Kenai Peninsula.
0: He does. Mhm. So Alaska and Colorado been your home all the way up Um
1: through, young mostly and old. but not all. We spent time we when he that school I talked about that we were in Wyoming. He did a short stint in Dayton, Ohio. Oh. We were in California for a couple of years. He was on the IG team.
0: Oh, you really were all over the place.
1: Mm-hmm. We didn't live anywhere very long.
0: When you were in Alaska, were you out of Anchorage there?
1: Yeah, Elmendorf.
0: Yeah. With all these jets we've seen flying around the last two weeks, where are, the, where are those coming from?
1: Elmendorf. This is a training area for them.
0: I, I'd say so. They fly around like they're dogfighting each other out there. Travis and I had a crazy experience with two jets coming through the valley we were hunting at super low elevation at super high speeds. And we heard him break the sound barrier twice mm-hmm. over the course of the last week. Yep. Um,
1: it's called a military operating area. Yeah.
0: It, It. honest to God, looks like we were watching Top Gun exercises unfold out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so how'd you get into smoke jumping? Was that later? Uh, flying no, that was
1: much to... earlier yeah. than all of this. It was, uh, when I graduated from high school, um, Spent a year in college down in the States, uh, or actually one semester, Yeah, about one semester, and I decided to drive up. And I got to Anchorage, didn't have any money, like any 18, 19-year-old. Yeah. Went to the uh, employment agency, and they had some forest fires going on. They were just looking for bodies to go out and work.
0: In uh, Here in Alaska? Mm-hmm. hmm
1: and then I ended up getting on a hot shot crew for two years, and then I applied for smoke jumping and got accepted to smoke jumping school in 1980.
0: And where's that at? Fairbanks. They teach you right up here in Alaska?
1: Yeah. It's the BLM. It was a BLM smoke jumper base. You know, most of them in the states are Forest Service.
0: So you're 18 at this point? I was, uh,
1: no, I was a little older. I was like 23 or 4 then.
0: By the time you're in the smoke jumper school, mm-hmm. Okay. Tell and me about that school. Th- th- what That
1: the- was it. Was a six week, uh, a six week program, uh, and you had to already have firefighting experience, at least two years. Which you had. Which we had. Which I had. And then uh, it was six weeks of training. Most of it, very, uh, there was some firefighting technique stuff, but most of it was the jumping aspect.
0: Had you ever done that before? Oh no. You'd never jumped out of an airplane. I never have either, and I'd really like to.
1: Yeah, I, I actually. In the end there, just before I got done, I actually took up skydiving for a while. Because you loved it. Yeah, it was fun.
0: How many times do you think you've jumped out of a plane?
1: I had, I believe, smoke jumping, including all my training jumps, I believe I had about 140 or 50, but I only had, I think I had about just under 50 smoke jumps in three years. Forty smoke jumps in three years, actual fire
0: jumps. Yeah, that sounds like a lot to me. It was a lot. So, it was. What it? Once you jump out of the airplane, uh, you have to safely get to the. Do you aim for the above wind, the high wind side of the fire?
1: Um, just wherever is logistically a sound area, relatively safe for you and your gear. <laughs>
0: Once you... But, uh,
1: but as far as... You don't jump into the fire. No, no, no that
0: sounds like a bad move. Yeah. You it was to be to the uh, side of it.
1: It's all about logistics of fighting a fire.
0: Okay. And how many guys would jump out? It just jump? depended. It was a very oh, small bad.
1: fire. It was mi- as little as two. Okay. Anywhere up to... Uh, the airplanes we used at the time were called Volpars. We had um, eight-man loads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an eight-man load was a full airplane. It, the planes they use now are much bigger. I think I think 12 or 16. Well, it's been a long time since I did it.
0: Um all, all over Alaska?
1: Alaska and uh, a lot of and I did the last 2 years I spent a fair amount of time on the western slope of Colorado, Grand Junction.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: Jump fires and BLM land in Colorado, Utah, Nevada. There's a lot of BLM land there.
0: That's a uh, a unique uh career path for mm. there's not that many people that have Signed up to smoke jump. What do you have to hike out every time, or do you get picked up up here?
1: Actually, up here we very few, very few times we ever hiked. We everything was done with helicopters. Up They'd
0: here. come get you, yeah.
1: Down in the states, yeah, we hiked out, and we'd get into wilderness areas where there weren't no motorized vehicles or stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I imagine it combines, like, some serious survival and bushcraft um, with firefighting and parachuting.
1: Well, you're you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but there are, you know, people keeping tabs on you. And sure. You, you're, you're always in touch with people. You know, you're, it's your job. You, you know, once your job's done, they need to get you back and get you going somewhere else.
0: So throughout your smoke jumping career, and your childhood, you're hunting and fishing a lot, but you're not yet guiding or doing it professionally? No. Or flying yet?
1: No, I was flying. You were? I, I learned to fly at a real young age. Okay. About I was 19 when I started flying. And that kind I of just went
0: hand in hand with your smoke jumping career?
1: Uh, no, not really. I no. was flying before I was a smoke jumper. Um, I learned to fly in 1978 in Anchorage. With your dad? No, I went to a flight school. You did? Mm-hmm. Went to a flight school, got soloed. Um, I did have a winter job working in a little village called Pedro Bay one year. And I found an a f- uh, air service in Dillingham that had a couple instructors and talked them into fin- finishing after I got soloed in Anchorage. Okay. And um, Which is down in southwest Alaska. And so I went down just because they were close by what I was doing that particular year. And uh, ended up getting my pilot's license there. And you never and stopped? Had, yep, just kept flying. Bought a little airplane, so I was always... Puttering around with it and flying it. And
0: Using it for hunting for yourself?
1: Yeah, hunting, fishing, just flying. What? Building time and experience.
0: Flying. What was your first plane?
1: A, a Taylor Craft. Okay. Which was it was a Taylor Craft BC-12 deal. little had an 85-horse engine in it. Real small airplane.
0: Real small airplane. Yeah,
1: it was just more for training. You'd, Getting hours. You know, you'd get you and your dog in your backpack, and that's all about it. All it could haul.
0: What happens if you have five dogs like me?
1: Uh you'd be
0: taxed i need to get a i need to get an extra wide cub mm-hmm. or something of the likes or maybe i just go for the cessna um so you finish up smoke jumping career does it there's a got to be a, a well time a t- clock on you can only well what happened so was
1: I, I started working uh for a guy in in wrangle mountains uh in the winter they were starting to build a lodge and stuff, so I was kind of working for them doing carpenter work and stuff. And that summer of 82, or summer, the winter of 82, after I was done smoke jumping, I was out there, and we, me and another smoke jumper, a buddy of mine, and I, we spent most of the winter doing a lot of preliminary stuff, getting ready to build some buildings out there.
0: And this is 82 or what? In
1: 82.
0: Okay, and the same year you bought the land here?
1: Well, uh, same year I staked the land, yep. That's kind of interesting. And the guy I was working for, his name was Paul Claus. He, him and I came out here and staked this land. And he kind of asked me that winter, he said, have you ever given commercial fishing a thought? I said, no, not really. Man, you might give it a try, he said. I said hmm. Did he have a boat you pretty, wanted to, to captain? No, he had a boat that, uh, you know, he was running a boat. And he wanted you to work on his boat. Work on a boat. And I thought about it, I was kind of, figured I was gonna make smoke jump in my career right. I'm pretty happy doing it and you know government job and you know retirement and you know all this stuff yeah. to think about. I said, take a year off, give it a try. Think, oh well what the heck. Well, at least I say I did it. Went out there never went back. You liked it. I kinda liked it.
0: Tell me about commercial yeah. fishing. Where in Alaska were you all uh, over the place doing different stuff? Nope,
1: mostly Bristol Bay.
0: Mostly it's, Bristol Bay.
1: The salmon fishery. Did some long lining in Kodiak, but just for a couple winters.
0: Long lining is like a halibut, right? And it's like a a trout a trout line, a big trout line, big trout line in the ocean, and you catch a lot of halibut and lingcod and and cod,
1: yep, whatever gets on the hooks. But we didn't do I didn't do that much. I just did it just to see what it was like. I didn't really. I've had I was kind of in the winters. I was doing construction work and didn't want to be away from home for all the time
0: through the 80s. There, you're. So did you? start running your own boat, or how would um, you deal with this?
1: I did that first year, and then I worked for him another year, 80, 83 and 84, and then in 85, and, in 85, I worked for another guy, and then there was a program that the state of Alaska had to buy, you had to have permits to get into these things, so I decided to give it a try, and I had some, uh, you know, I would saved up a little money, and I bought a Bristol Bay permit, uh, through this loan program, the state of Alaska.
0: And that's I mean, a permission slip for you to go commercially it's, operate. It, it's
1: a permit, yeah, yeah. It allows you to fish in. You know, there's many areas and Bristol Bay is just one of them.
0: Is there a one-year permit, a lifelong? No,
1: it's it's a piece of property you own. You sell, it. and you could sell it later. It has a market value. Okay. And they've gotten bear. You know, they've gone up. They're like commodities. They go up and down with. the marketability of the fish you catch yeah,
0: tell, tell me about the the fish market in the 80s what what species of salmon are you targeted uh the only
1: the thing sure. we ever targeted over there was sockeye salmon red red salmon okay that's and it is probably the biggest sockeye salmon roaming in the world mm-hmm. not probably it is
0: and this is yeah. what was directly being threatened by the mine the pebble the, mine, the
1: pebble mine is in its uh, very tributaries of that yeah. of that thing. But that got shut mine, down. It's gotten shut down.
0: Yeah, forever like it's done done.
1: Um, yeah, far as I know. Yeah. I haven't really kept up with it much. Are
0: you uh so different types of fishing are you putting out a gill net? Are you saneing yep. or a
1: gill net, uh drift gill netting, drifting with a boat.
0: Can explain exactly like what that looks like.
1: Uh it's a all the boats are limited. Uh, you couldn't have just any boat. You had to have a boat that was thirty two feet or shorter um what's
0: the why would they want small boats?
1: um, I don't really know, okay that was just they put a limit a length limit on that fishery uh of thirty I can think
0: of a couple reasons why, but yeah, go ahead it,
1: it I think- originally it came with the locals um
0: they don't want big ass boats out there sweeping up all the fish. yeah,
1: they didn't want to have competition with you know people moving in, even though most commercial fishing was done. There were, of course, a lot of locals, but the lion's share of the fishermen are, are not even from Alaska. Is that right? Just like most fisheries in Alaska, most of them are a lot
0: of Washington
1: guys. Dominated from Washington, Oregon, California, they, but they're all from all over.
0: Yeah, and so you set up your boat to have drift gill netting mm-hmm. for so- primarily sockeyes, mm-hmm. and so you you string the gill net out. How big's the gill net?
1: Uh, it's one hundred and fifty fathoms. 900 feet
0: long long how tall
1: about 12 feet deep
0: and it's from the surface to 12 yep. feet down
1: from the corks that hold it on the surface to a lead line that has it hanging yep. down like a fence
0: yep this is like a, like got
1: a, it's a, a tennis
0: you can almost think of like a tennis court yeah uh,
1: chain link fence yep something similar to that
0: and these schools of fish swim into it get their heads stuck it's right. a trap line it's
1: called a gill net they, A they gill yeah gills get caught in it that's how you catch them
0: and how many of those would you put out at a time, just one?
1: Well, it's just one net.
0: Okay, so you're not putting out one, then going putting out another and checking, I'm just thinking trap line stuff. No, it has
1: to stay attached to the boat. Is that right? It comes in sections, but that's just for being able to replace one when it gets torn up. You put, most of the time, you try and fish the whole entire net.
0: What's a good haul?
1: Oh, (laughs) you kind of measure it by days. You know per hauls or how many sometimes,
0: times can you check in a day?
1: oh many times you want, you can have everything from zero to a thousand fish depends on what's going on
0: how many like realistically, how many times a day would you check that net in peak season
1: oh well, it's a very competitive fishery, yeah see it that. was uh oh i I lose count. Probably 20, 30 times.
0: Somewhere. Okay, yeah, I, d- I didn't know if it was that. Uh, other was days, lat- if it was very five, slow, maybe or,
1: five or four. Or,
0: and you know. A good, a huge haul would be 1,000 fish.
1: Yeah, that'd be a good a good catch.
0: You'd load up on these things as you pulled the gill net onto the boat. You'd have deckhands pulling them out of the net, throwing them on ice. You putting, load,
1: them on, putting them in fish holds.
0: You load up your boat, and then you go to a fish buyer. A buyer,
1: whatever. but normally it was a tender, a bigger boat that they yep. offloaded into their fish holds.
0: So it's a larger boat that all of the fishermen go to so they don't have to travel as far right. and they can keep fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that larger boat will go to a cannery. Mm-hmm. What were what were good and what were bad salmon prices through the 80s when you were doing it? Uh,
1: the first part of the 80s, it was about 70, if I remember right when I started, we bit in 65 to 75 cents a pound. Um,
0: and did it get better or worse?
1: Uh, at that time, it got better. Uh, 88 was the highest price I ever saw ever well of course before and ever after we ended up getting about 250 a pound
0: has it ever gone that high again no what's it worth today
1: um well I retired in 19 I believe you did it it that long Mm -hmm. 35 years
0: wow Mm -hmm. very long time
1: and I think uh, this year I think it was at sitting at about a buck thirty-five.
0: So not, n- not good, not great. It's just oh, No, that's a good price. That is a good price. Okay.
1: And they had a very high volume of fish this year, so that was made it even better. Every fact, year's it was a little biggest different. Biggest run, biggest run ever on history.
0: You ever experienced just a dud year of fish numbers? Oh yeah, New it happens, times. huh? Mm-hmm. And it's a limited window when you can go do this. Um, did you ever done any cra- commercial crabbing? Nope, didn't mess with it.
1: Mm-mm.
0: Did by the end of your career commercial fishing? Did you, did you own your own boat? Were you running your own? Yeah, boat? I had my
1: own boat by by 1985.
0: Pretty quick there. I
1: ran a yeah. I was only deckhand for three years.
0: You were a one man band.
1: No, uh, I no, I had a crew. Oh, yeah, you have to have a crew.
0: Okay, I misheard. I thought you were saying you you <laughs> were a one man. Uh, deckhand you were your own deckhand on your boat no, that's not what you're no. saying you said no. you worked on someone else's boat just for a couple of years there right how many guys work on a boat like that
1: typically these days about four you have a captain and three guys some guys bring on a few more is it like oh, a, now
0: a two-month season or you're basically
1: you're at it two months. you're fishing more like six weeks but you know, there's time to get ready, time to put things away, it's time to deal with the boat and all the stuff.
0: A lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Why'd you leave it? Did you get more into the outfitting?
1: No, oh, no, tired. <laughs> Thirty-five that, years was enough.
0: That's uh, <laughs> a hard work out there. Mm-hmm. But there's money to be made. There's uh, there's I know guys make small fortunes every year. Mm-hmm. Being just decade, I've entertained the idea of going out and be in a hand for see if I could hack it Mm -hmm. and hopefully hit it on a good year and get paid. Yeah. So you start building all these cabins out here in the Alaska Mm -hmm. range in 91. You're building a business with Rod Shoe, your partner. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you start with out here? Did you start as a sheep outfitter, a sheep guide here? Uh, Oh, we did uh,
1: our first. Year operating, I believe, was 92 or 3.
0: Um, this is the wall tent era?
1: Yep, wall tents. Um, and right here with the lodge sits, we had two weather ports. One was the kitchen. The other one was basically like the pantry and where the cook stayed. Mm-hmm. And then the guides had a couple wall tents over there, and we had a couple wall tents over here for the for the hunters.
0: And okay. you and Rod are pilots? Mm-hmm. So you got this camp... Uh, you both have pilots. You both have cubs. Mm-hmm. Um, how many hunters? Of what? What was the first year look like?
1: Oh, I believe we had probably maybe eight, nine.
0: Mixed bag.
1: Yeah, mixed bag. And at the same time, we were doing doll sheep hunts in 14C just east of Anchorage. Yep. So I was doing them here, and he was he was doing them that over there. Was always a draw in the Chugach, a draw. even back then? Yep, back then. Did that.
0: I killed the Chugach doll sheep. Mm-hmm. Very proud of that sheep up Eagle River I did. Mm-hmm. Anyways, back to you.
1: Yeah, we did a lot of hunting in Eagle River and Bird Sorry. Creek and all that back in there. Hunter Creek. And
0: Your first eight hunters out here in 92 are coming out for doll sheep and moose? Um,
1: I believe the first couple were just caribou. Okay, you know, We didn't have much of a reputation or anything. But we did have a couple of sheep hunters um, at the end of August, and then we had two or three moose hunters, and then we did some caribou hunting towards the end.
0: Uh, Two questions. Tell me about, uh, what'd you charge for a dull sheep hunt in 92? Oh. If you just had to guess.
1: Six grand. Six to 7,000.
0: Was that still the most expensive thing, or was moose? Uh, No, they
1: are about even with moose.
0: Kind of always have been, huh? Yeah,
1: kind of always have been. Until why, lately,
0: people pay more for a big moose than they will a doll sheep.
1: Yeah, um, b- uh, moose guiding is a, much, a lot more work. We never did figure out why, why we charge the same price. The
0: airplanes, the labor, the packer, uh, everything. The
1: packer, lo- multiple loads, big mm. bunch of meat.
0: Sheep hunting's like, put your backpack on one-on-one, let's go for a 10-day walk. Mm-hmm. Kind of low overhead. hmm um, and you were personally guiding these people? Yep. Yeah. Oh, we were both, We were
1: both guy. doing guiding and flying.
0: What was your favorite thing to hunt out here? Oh, well, sheep. Always been sheep. Mm-hmm. And the sheep numbers you've seen go up and down throughout the years.
1: Yeah, up and down, and right now they are down. Yeah, due so, to this thing. This is what we're looking at here. Lots t- of snow. We call
0: that winter. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's still holding on out there. Pretty
1: hard to What's believe tomorrow's day after tomorrow's may god
0: <laughs> that is nuts um so what what were the sheep numbers like in the 90s um moderate not it good was, not great it was
1: just on a it was just starting to come back from another Spill. tough to go out here
0: and quality of ram has it always been? Insane? It's they're
1: fine. They have good genetics.
0: Yeah, you get some age on them. You can get a 14-inch base out of them, and
1: we've had numerous 50, 14. Yeah. you know, 12 and a half to 14s not that uncommon. Yeah, depends on the winters, nutrition, and all that stuff.
0: Some giant caribou out here. Mm-hmm. Not not a million of them like people might picture other migra- migratory herds of caribou. Mm-hmm. I always think it's funny. I I think of these caribou as like mountain caribou, but mm-hmm. they're they're not. They're barren ground, but mm-hmm. they're, they they kind of live the mountain caribou life. Mm-hmm. So sheep was always your favorite. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's the largest ram you've killed or guided?
1: Oh, uh, the largest scored one seventy-seven.
0: Good lord!
1: And well, that was in the Wrangell Mountains.
0: It was. Mm-hmm. That had to be what 15 and a half by 45
1: i don't remember it was over 45 golly i think it was about 15 and it was super symmetrical
0: just beautiful
1: yeah it was the horns mirrored each other
0: you guided some some other Mm -hmm. legendary sheep in the chugach as well
1: no i never did you didn't no i never You're out here yeah i was out here guided a couple okay ones. If that, once we got going with things, you know, you kind of, when you're running a guiding business, you kind of back off from the guiding. You don't have time.
0: Yeah, especially when you're the pilot, too.
1: Pilot and figuring everything out. and.
0: Yeah, no, I, I see it for everybody I work for. It makes sense. That's how it happens. Mm-hmm. So through the years, starting in the 90s, you just continued to build these buildings, build your outfitting mm-hmm. business. And today, as it sits... The old Big River Lodge here, it's mm-hmm. one of the most impressive operations I've seen in Alaska. It's one of the most comfortable uh, places I've ever been. I uh, i was in a sauna today. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have a damn spa built over there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When everybody kept talking about the sauna, I thought it was going to be a little bit of a kind of a redneck sauna or something, mm-hmm. like a sweat lodge with some tarps and mm-hmm. a stove. But I felt like I walked into a, a spa over there. It was awesome, yeah. and coming off of 14 days on the mountain, it was incredibly mm-hmm. satisfying. So it's top shelf. It's five star place here. It's unbelievable, and um, the hunting here is incredible too. Mm-hmm. You know, the sheep hunting has just been suspended here, which mm-hmm. we're, we're going to get into. But I don't want don't want to get you too worked up because i know it's a, a passionate oh a point of passion for you um uh, well. the all the alaska range is 19c oh, not just 19c mm-hmm. so kind of the western alaska range, northwestern
1: uh, yeah a fair portion of it but not all by any means
0: has just been closed to non-resident dull sheep hunting mm-hmm. which brings your dull sheep outfitting to a grinding halt
1: for, for a while yeah
0: for, how long are they doing this for?
1: Well, they've put a number of five years, but that's not a re- etched in stone. It's not. They can reopen it if things change.
0: What do you attribute the current low sheep numbers to? Bad winters. Killing lambs.
1: Yep, very lamb and ewe survival rate right now is very low. Yeah. And without ya- lambs and ewes, you don't get big ramps. You're just going to get a drop in everything.
0: So you are against this closure. Uh, obviously, I would guess, as you're operating a business out here, you're against it because it stops you from operating your business. But even from a a biological standpoint, you seem to be against it. So explain uh, your... There
1: was there was really – by the way, they managed all sheep in the state of Alaska. They managed what they call by the full curl rule. Mm-hmm. If all you harvest is full curl rams eight years or older. And um, if
0: you do that, what is the result?
1: Well, the result is you're you're not, any kind of decrease in theory is only going to come from either environment, disease, or predators.
0: So you're saying if human beings are only killing 8-year-old rams or more, it makes zero significant effect on the overall population numbers as proven. Mm-hmm. And that's how Alaska operates. So shutting out non-residents who are targeting these legal sheep it It doesn't it, it seem to solve
1: what they were trying to fix.
0: They might, there might be more rams surviving next hunting season, but it doesn't matter. They're done. Mm-hmm. Life's fizzling out for them, anyways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I heard somewhere one out of a hundred rams will make it to 10 years old.
1: I, I don't, I've, I've never really known, and heard about those sort of ratios. Point,
0: point is every year you get older as a sheep and mm-hmm. a human i suppose m- more and more likely that you're going to die and less probability that you're going to make it eight eight years old eight nine ten years old you're at the end of that curve you are right. going to die whether a hunter shoots you or not
2: mm-hmm.
0: well hopefully it gets sorted out um and the sheep hunting continues hopefully more importantly the sheep numbers here improve and
1: it's a cycle it's, a cycle, it, it's happened before
0: said moose are doing pretty good right now.
1: The moose appear to be doing pretty good right now. We'll see. Yeah. With this amount of snow they can struggle too.
0: Seems like all of North America got hit with kind of a brutal mm-hmm. winter. Mm-hmm. You're hearing about it from Utah to Alaska. Um but hopefully it rebounds out. You busy with caribou and moose and bear hunters this coming fall I'm sure? Yeah we got
1: we got a few things to do.
0: You live out here full time in the fall pretty much? Pretty much flying back and forth, shuttling people in, in gear and animals.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, from end of July to the end of September.
0: It's an incredible place. I hope to come back, which surprised me. You told me the other day you've have, you've never trapped out here, not a trapper.
1: I'm, I'm not. I mean, I've played around with it, but I don't consider myself a trapper.
0: Well, I've, only, I've pl- only played around with it, too, but I do consider myself a trapper. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. So at home, I try to do some beaver trapping and bobcat trapping and martin trapping and this to me would just be such a fun place to come out in the winter and run a small trap line you you'd target wolverine and wolves and i don't know i think we should talk more offline about that booking a trapping a winter trapping camp out here i'll, I'll yeah. find some clients for you
1: yep you're just gonna be obligated to be here all winter
0: yeah yeah, that's uh you know, when you put it that way, it sounds a little harder.
1: Mm-hmm. Um no, November to March.
0: You don't have to trap the whole time. If you just wanted to do it for fun. <laughs> you could Rob ain't coming back. Rob <laughs> drops you off out here, he goes, yeah, you want to be a trapper? You're a trapper now. See you in three months, partner. Yep. Like, but, no, I not it's
1: not what we yeah, agreed on. I yeah, don't break my shit. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah um you got several snowmobiles here you got a bulldozer you got airplane you got everything here um justin seated my conversation with you with a couple stories that i want you to touch on quickly um tell me a story about when you got frostbite and nearly lost your foot
1: well that was a long time ago what happened paul claus and i went out on a snowmobile ride up off the Out behind a place off the Glen Highway called O'Klutna Lodge. Mm -hmm. We just jumped on our sleds. We had a drum of gas in in a sled. Decided to go riding around. We got about 25 miles north of the highway. And we spent one night, camped out, and then we were going to go. We had a map, you know. We were just running around out there just to do something, just to ride. Went across late and dropped through into some overflow. Mm-hmm. I had a double track machine called an Alpine then. I don't know. Old guys did not remember what they were. But And I got we got the thing stuck. I couldn't get it out. Had a forward reverse transmission. I snapped it. There was a chain inside. Snapped it, trying to back up to get out of there. Snapped the chain. And so we go, well. We just need to ride back and get in our truck, to go back to town. Uh, Paul had a cub, then we we're gonna ride out in a cub and fix this thing. And But first we had to get it up out of the water. So we went it was cut down. Yeah, it was overflow. So oh, water's oh, on top of us.
0: I, I see, you were riding along the river and this is where water's no, rushing. No, it was across oh. the lake. And water is on top of the ice here. On
1: top of the ice. So we j- we got some trees. We built a way to pry it up. And we started shoving trees. And we got it up out of the water where it wouldn't be frozen in when we got back. We get on his machine. We start riding back. And about 20 miles out, his machine breaks down. Oh, boy. And uh, and I forget what the reason was. We couldn't get it started for whatever reason.
0: How far out are you still? We're
1: About 20 miles.
0: 20 to go. Mm-hmm
1: so we decided just to walk <laughs> so we started walking and in the process messing with my machine i got my feet all wet and i had Sorel boots on mm. which were a felt pack just and it was sponge. about 25 30 below so we were walking walking, we'd walk. we'd walk for it took us like five hours to walk i mean we just walked all the way
0: you with two ice blocks on your feet
1: well i didn't know it at the time you know they froze up kind of slowly Anyway, we got back to the Eureka Lodge, and got our trucks running, which took a little bit because it was 25, 30 below, and we did get them running. Went in, were eating, ordered a hamburger, and all of a sudden my feet start feeling funny. I told Paul, I'm going to go in the bathroom take these boots off. Something's wrong here. Something hurts. Got in the bathroom, tried to take the boots off. Couldn't get them off. So I told Paul to get in there and pull my boots off. So yeah. Richard couldn't pull them off. Just, just wouldn't come off my foot.
0: Blocks ice. Frozen so he, fin-
1: t- he finally gets a big knife out and cuts the back of my boot off and finally pulls it off. And about three inches of all my skin on the back of my heel came with it.
0: Oh, my gosh. And just dead, frozen flesh. Just
1: frozen, gray flesh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Which I'm pretty I was numb. I mean, we were really tired and everything. <laughs> So, the people that had that place, and it, it was right around Thanksgiving weekend, their daughter have, just happened to be going to nursing school, but she was home for Thanksgiving. And Paul says, "Me, my, can you come look at this? And she looked at that, she says, oh my God, you've got serious frostbite. <laughs> so, she said, oh, well, let me call someone. She called a doctor, his name at the time was Dr. Mills, and he was the local area expert on frostbite in fact he lost his leg in world war ii i believe to frostbite
0: and that a that spurred of his lifelong expertise yeah and
1: he became a doctor and that was what he specialized in was frostbite victim most climbers uh slope workers that you know people get out in severe weather it happens and um so th- she he told her wrap him in a blanket Wrap his feet in a blanket. Don't let it don't let it thaw out. Drive straight to Glen Allen. That was the closest. He says, "I'll call the health aid there and tell tell them what to do." So we got there, and they had this big stainless steel tub full of water that was, I believe, a hundred and four degrees, which is just like body temp, warm like warm, warm water. Yeah. and they would filled it with the, a bunch of this betadine, which is iodine, a cleansing. That man, you know, keeps infection down. So they said, well, this is going to hurt a bit, and we can't give you any painkillers because painkillers reduce circulation. What we're trying to do is get the circulation going again.
0: Uh, what's the theory on going slow, heating them up instead of heating them up quickly?
1: Uh, damages the – it does more damage. If you,
0: if you flush the blood back in too fast, yeah. it's not ready for it.
1: It's not, yeah. It just – it 104, I believe, is the ideal temperature. But when they stuck my feet in there, it felt like it was going into boiling water. Both feet. Both feet. And what
0: was where did you have the frostbite on you? Um, everywhere.
1: On my left foot, up to my, my instep, and my right foot was about to my the ball joint of my toes. And the f- right foot was not very bad, but the left foot was terrible. Anyway, they didn't did lose then. any toes or nothing by the end. Of it? Um, not not no.
0: not full toes.
1: No, I didn't really lose anything in the end. But we I was there for an entire day. The next day. Um, They're keeping. We left, left my truck and at Eureka. Paul drove me there, and then he drove me to Anchorage and went to Providence, and I laid in the burn unit for 21 days. Oh my gosh! It w- waiting for you. Know, and I I did get gangrene. And that's um, where
0: flesh is dead flesh dead because of flesh. the frostbite. Like gets mm-hmm. infected or it starts mm-hmm.
1: to rot. I had an arm full of needles with antibiotics going in, and they said you probably will get this because it's part of the program. And That can kill you. And that was what Dr. Mills said back when he lost his leg. They didn't even try to save it. In order to keep gangrene, they, Chopped would, it off. they went to what they called the frost line where the f- frostbite stopped and they just cut it off.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: That was just what they did and that was which he found out later once they had antibiotics could deal with this gangrene fight
0: fight it and save the limb
1: yeah you just let you just let fall off naturally what was going to fall off
0: we were talking earlier today about how hardcore wars used to be fought kind of like face to face with people and how if you had any slight injury at all amputations were so common in the revolutionary and civil war and even into world war one anything goes wrong they just Lop the limb off mm-hmm. to save your life, mm-hmm. theoretically. Does it affect you to this day? Do your feet—they oh, yeah. hurt today?
1: It, it doesn't hurt, but it—you know—they get cold easy, and yeah. there's a little ache and stuff. Yeah, they're—they're they're not what they used to be.
0: I got it on both of my big toes mm-hmm. in Jackson Hole one winter hunting buffalo, mm-hmm. and same thing. It was warmed them up slowly in that room temperature water, and it was one of the more painful things I'd ever experienced flesh turned dead and black and about 25 percent of each of my big toes just schlepped off a week later Mm -hmm. just dead flesh and now they're uh extremely sensitive to the cold and it's too bad because i spend a lot of my life out in the snow Mm -hmm. i heard another story about you coming across a plane crash
1: which one yeah okay (laughs)
0: We found, you found a plane crash? You helped, You recovered some people out of a plane? Is this again, are you going to say which one? Uh,
1: that was in the Wrangell Mountains, working for Paul Claus.
0: And you were? We didn't
1: come across We found them. You uh, were on
0: ground hunting?
1: Yeah, we were actually at the lodge.
0: You seen it happen?
1: Um, somebody else saw it happen. We didn't see it. Uh, we were at, at the lodge. We were doing sheep hunts. It was in mid-August, I believe. And a plane lands, says, hey... Somebody up there in a play it was called Devil's Kitchen. It was just the name of this little of course tank. it was, and they said, yeah, right up in there, a plane just hit the side of a mountain. Oh God, so Paul and I jumped in the plane, flew around, sure enough, there was a plane you know pretty much splattered in the side of the hill.
0: What type of plane
1: that was a Satabria, I believe it was been rented from the Fort Rich, the army based flying club. It was a uh, guy just learned to fly, and they decided to go try their hand at sheep hunting.
0: And it was a sheep hunter.
1: Uh, that's that was the family story. They rented this plane, and they were going to go sheep hunting in the Wrangell Mountains. Yeah. Which we didn't know why they were up there. Or so you
0: found them from the air.
1: Found them from the air. Paul landed up above them. Um, I walked down. I got didn't get real close. I said, Yeah, we better. You know, you don't mess with stuff like that. You know, so we called state troopers.
0: You suspect everybody's dead.
1: Oh, well, yeah, it was obvious they yeah. were dead. Yeah. And uh, then I went back up with the state trooper and the helicopter and and the trooper and the helicopter pilot. And, and the trooper and I went down there. We put took the bodies out of the plane. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the trooper, uh, one thing I do remember was... Um, he didn't want to put these bodies in a bag. He says, well, I don't have any bags. I go, well, they got bags, sleeping bags. He wanted to harness these, just tie rope around their waist. I mean, every body in their, every bone in their body broke. Oh he handed God. a sack of potatoes getting them out of the plane.
0: What a horrible sight.
1: It, yeah, it was not pretty. So I w- said, no, we're happened? not going to do that because we have a lodge full of clients down there. We're not going to have
0: we're not gonna string smashed dead bodies up bodies yeah.
1: going down there and.
0: So you proposed?
1: Well, no, I just took, got drug in the back of their plane and found their sleeping bags, and shoved them in sleeping bags.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: And, and then we, I, I built this harness thing, put them both together, built a harness, they'd lift them. In two seconds later, they're back down, and then Paul and I took them uh, to Glen Allen, as the troopers instructed us to do. Wow,
0: so, that's that's a tough day on the mountain. That's
1: yeah, it was. And it turned out there he was just got his pilot's license, very novice. Basically, flew up the canyon. Realized he, we figured he li- realized he wasn't couldn't get turned around and just flew right straight. Tried to make you know, a U-turn and,
0: and tried to make U-turn and didn't make it.
1: Yeah, that or did, didn't try to turn at all. Didn't figure he was going to make it. And thought maybe he was going to land, but you don't land in something that steep. You just splatter in.
0: I remember the first time flying in a bush plane, a Cub, in the mountains. Uh, and how tight we held to you know, going up a valley, how tight we would hold to a side of the hill. Mm-hmm. And I, it not really registered. I was like, man, why wouldn't you just shoot the middle? This seems like we're dangerously close to this mm-hmm. mountain to our right. And it, as it turns out, uh, you always want an exit. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to make that U-turn utilizing the complete width of the valley, mm-hmm. that's going to buy you a lot more. Mm-hmm. So these guys tried to pull that off and it was too tight.
1: Mm-hmm. That was my guess, or our guess.
0: <laughs> um, tell me a story about putting a snowmobile on a super cub.
1: Uh we built a rack to haul the main part of the super cub. To the main part of the snowmobile. A around, tundra. A tundra one of those out there. Yeah. Uh and it it worked okay. <laughs> it was it was not it it was you know, you had to be very careful.
0: Whose idea was this? Oh, Rod's. It's, it's pretty incredible. So you already have, like, one of the most capable bush planes to mm-hmm. get land anywhere out here, you know, almost anywhere out here. And now, not only can you land almost anywhere out here, you have a damn and snowmobile.
1: Really, that's not – that's been done a lot.
0: Is that right? Mm-hmm. It was the first I ever heard of it. Um,
1: yeah, a lot of people actually – disassemble them way down and put them on a, lump, a belly rack underneath.
0: But y'all didn't do that. Yours were whole.
1: They were whole. It was not whole. I mean, we had to remove some things, put it inside. But it wasn't as far apart as I've seen some guys take them. And most of the time they used uh, Elans because they were even smaller than those.
0: And Tell me about flying with one of those. Did you have to fight it?
1: Mm. No, you just had to be careful in turns.
0: What was you guys had a kind of a yeah, you a just silent to, rule that you never turn left or something?
1: Yeah, you just don't put the machine down, you put you turn with it going up. Because it was always a right turn.
0: You might not be able to recover Well, you had to re it was just blank. didn't
1: feel very good. We didn't <laughs> you we didn't flying give, cockeyed? We didn't give it give it a chance to yeah. do anything.
0: You kinda yeah. stay in charge with it up on right. the high side. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty wild. Um, appreciate you telling me some of your stories, man. I hope this is the first of many adventures I get to have here at the lodge, and I appreciate you having us. It's been an incredible week up here. Uh, two weeks. Two been, weeks. Yeah, yeah, I just got back from the field. It's been two weeks. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, All right. Mr. Rob Jones. We'll see you. All right.